0: So, uh, we're taking a small break to kind of walk through, well, uh, what are these things that we do, what are these rhythms that we do, and why do they matter? Why are they um, transformative for us as a people? And so, uh, we talked about preaching two weeks ago, um, how God speaks, because God speaks, because it sets Him apart um, from every other basically uh, a God that's been formed by man throughout the universe that is, is not God, the God of the scriptures, is the God who talks and communicates, and because he does that, he's given the avenue of preaching, of uh, speaking to one another in the words that he's given. And then we talked about singing last week, how um, God demands and deserves singing, not just out of duty, but the delight it gives us, right, as a people, how we sing to each other, and we sing to God, and how singing stirs us, it grounds us in trial, it gives us joy, and it also helps us bring glory to God. And so this week, um, we're going to be talking about what is known as the Lord's Supper or communion. Now, um, some of you guys are like, I mean, how, how exciting can the Lord's Supper be? Given a sermon on it. It's actually, glad you asked, it's actually pretty exciting. There's actually a lot that, that you can say about it. And it actually matters that we understand what we're doing as we come to what's known as this table in the front, as we see the crackers and see the juice and what they represent, and more than what they represent, but what is happening as we come to the table and partake of these things. And so um, that's what we're going to be doing this morning, is talking about the rhythm of um, the Lord's Supper. And I, I really can't encourage you enough, if you missed the last two weeks, you, I really encourage you to listen to those, because um, they're really going to be formative for you as we continue to gather and grow as a people by God's grace. Um, so if you have a Bible, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. That's where we're going to camp out this morning. Um, we're going to maybe pull from uh, Luke 22 a little bit, because I have to get Luke in there somewhere. But uh, no, we, we'll, we'll try to kind of bounce, but stay locked into 1 Corinthians chapter 11. It's really where you get basically the first instructions of, of the communion meal happening in a local church. It's really kind of the first time you get clear instructions of that. Now, um, all four Gospels lay out for you this institution of the Lord's Supper, because you've got to find its historic origin. So, its historic origin happens in Jesus, right, the night before he's crucified, but Right Before he will give himself as a ransom for sin, he, he basically is sitting with his disciples he's sitting with his followers and he, and he institutes he gives the church the people of God this gift called the lord's Supper or communion and so that's where its origin is. so here what you're seeing is there's a local church um, in the place of Corinth right and, and Paul's writing them and instructing them on a number of things and, you need to understand, I guess, a, a, a few things here. Number one, um, this will in no way be exhaustive. So I'm going to encourage you to study. I'm going to encourage you to dig deep because there are traditions, there are thoughts, there are places. I'm going to share with you what we believe, what we see this as, and then let's continue to roll and dive and dig into the, the, the profound mysteries that are everything that God gives his church. So in the preaching sermon, it's not everything I could say, and singing last week, it's not everything I could say, but I hope that these are the most important things we could say and look at in relation to the rhythms that we do as a called people. So um, as you get to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, you're going to head to verse 17. And um, let me just help you understand why um, Paul is, is writing to them. Is because number one, um, the Lord's Supper or communion, Eucharist, however you've grown up understanding it or hearing it, um, this is something that Jesus gave basically and to very simply yet profoundly say, I want this on the forefront of your minds, right? I want my death and my crucifixion, all that I did for you, my broken body and shed blood to be what remains in the front of you, right? Every time you come together, every time you walk and think and live, right? The gospel is something that we want to see and we want to remember. And, and here's why he's helping correct the church of Corinth. They're not batting a thousand, Okay, they, these people are suing each other, they're sleeping with each other, they're hiring prostitutes. This is just a train wreck. It's a mess of a church, and Paul is basically writing this letter to help instruct them, organize them, help them understand, hey, you can't say that, hey, I'm safe from hell, now I can live like hell, like with fire insurance. Like, the, the power of Jesus Christ does something to you. It, it changes you, so you don't live the same. You don't see the world through the same lens. And so, uh, here he's kind of going to get after the Lord's Supper aspect of this, as they've made a train wreck. Out of it. In verse 17, here is what Paul writes He says, But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Okay, so, so Paul just basically rolls out right away and says, hey, w- when you come together, you're not even eating the Lord's Supper, you're basically making a mockery of it, okay? This has just turned into a mess. Everything that I'm seeing here is not at all what God gave and what Jesus gave and designed for the church when he gave it. So there's no unity, there's no love. You're chasing out after Jesus, you're not remembering Jesus, you're remembering you and walking after your preferences, walking after your sin, there's no examination. There's no seriousness at all about what's happening here. And so um, as he's rolling, through this, he shows you that basically, Lord, something is, is not so much something you do with your hands. It's something you do with your heart, okay? And, and here's basically how you got to understand what's happening here in this context of of the church at Corinth. Um, they're mixing it with their dinner, okay? Now, some of you guys are like, well, what's the big deal? I mean, they're mixing it with their dinner. And, and when you understand meals, some of you guys are like, this is all there is. Like, this isn't a meal. This is removing that, this is what's happening. They're taking the the good, godly institution of the Lord's Supper and basically integrating it with pagan practices of the day and all their ideology. So so you've got what would happen in their day in Corinth is all the rich people would have these big fanfares, these big parties with music, and they'd hire prostitutes for everybody, rampant sexual morality, rampant sin, and they were basically integrating that into their time together as they came together to eat bread and drink the cup and observe the Lord's Supper. Right. So, So Paul's going, you're debasing this. Like This is a straight mock of what Jesus gave to the church. You don't, you don't do this so that you can just do what you want in your sin. You do this to remember that Jesus saved you from your sin and enables you to live differently and new as a Christian. And so here we see these people just going crazy to where it's turning into happy hour, right? I mean, can you imagine? Like, hey, it took communion today, and everybody drives out of church at Bergen, five accidents on 17. Hi, where We're worried you this morning? Church. Oh, great, great witness, right? Great testimony. I was at happy hour on 348 Evelyn Street. That, that's not what Paul ever intended or Jesus ever intended here. And so um, you see all this craziness happening. Paul's basically saying this is not love. This is a circus. This is silliness. This is not sacredness. This is not life-giving worship, this is ritualistic routine that has led into continued sin and rampant sin. So Paul's basically saying, why do you do this? Why are you showing favoritism? These wealthy people are showing up eating all the food, drinking all the wine, and the poor aren't even getting any. You're equally sinned and fallen, yet equally loved by God in Christ, and yet you're doing all of these things that don't mark you as a gospel people. So Paul's going to instruct them here So he says, "Hey, hey, Corinthians, let me remind you of a couple things when you get together as the church. Because when you're coming together as the church, here's what you were doing. Okay, let me let me straighten you out. Let me recalibrate you. Let me restructure you in the ways to understand the institution of the Lord's Supper. And um, here's what he does. He basically restates Luke 22. You can go back to Luke 22 and see that he's just taking exactly what Jesus has said when he instituted it with his followers, with his disciples." And he's showing you not only the historical origin when Jesus gave this, but he's showing you Jesus is the focus. Okay, so, so listen, if you don't get anything but this, this is huge, the purpose of the Lord's Supper, the purpose of communion is not you, it's not daydreaming, it's not ethereal mysticism, it's a real historical fact that happened, like it's it's, it's, it's built up upon Jesus Christ crucified, Jesus Christ risen, so the focus here is this idea of remembering, you're remembering his broken body, you're remembering his shed blood, and and the, he references these two things, right, the bread representing his broken body, that, that Jesus Christ absolutely suffered, that absolutely he took on pain and anguish and wrath, so you did not have to, right? He was your wrath absorber, your wrath taker, so you didn't have to take that on judgment day, not only in your sin and your flesh, but ultimately in eternity, right? He stood for you in your place as your substitute. But then he, then he says something really important. He says, this blood, this this blood rep- this, this juice represents my blood, which is the new covenant, um, so here's what you're seeing. Here's what you're remembering. Is, is if, this all points back to Passover and basically the, the sacrificial system that Jesus instituted. And, and if, if you don't have a, a, a big church background, you're fuzzy with your memory, it basically is God comes to this guy Abraham and he says, hey, through your descendants is going to be this nation. And this nation is going to be so big and so great, not that they see you as great, but they say me is great. They're gonna see me as their God being awesome, as glorious, going, man, that's the true God. The God of Israel, that's the one true God. Not all these gods that we make with our hands, not all these wooden carvings, not all these gods that don't speak and can't interact. No, their God is real. He acts, he affirms, he talks, he communicates. And as this happens, as that forms into the nation of Israel, there's famine that just hits the land, and then they get stuck in being, trying to find refuge in Egypt. They get into slavery, and then you've got all these pharaohs that come and go, right? Good ones, bad ones. It ultimately comes to this guy who's super bad, super oppressive, hates the people of God, really starts, really is committing the fundamental sin of the universe, which is, I want to be God, I want to be worshipped. I don't like that these Israelites are worshipping somebody else. And the whole time they're going, well, you're not God. There's the God that we worship, the one true God. So what does God do? He raises up a deliverer in the person of Moses, right? He says, hey, Moses, why don't you go in there, talk to Pharaoh, be my mouthpiece, and say, hey, you better let my people go because I'm the true God. I don't like your oppressive nature. I want them to worship me in freedom and and worship me in enjoyment. And so Moses goes to him, and God is super gracious, by the way. I mean, he's like, hey, let my people go. And Pharaoh's like, no, no, no. And Moses just keeps going, hey, let my people go. No, no, no. And so eventually he goes, okay, well, plagues are gonna come. If you wanna just be hard-hearted... And arrogant and proud, plagues are coming. And so these plagues start coming. There's, there's about nine of them. And then there's one last one that comes. And Moses comes and basically says, hey, you got one more shot at mercy. You got one more chance. Th- this plague is going to be bad, though. This plague, it's going to be that the firstborn in every Egyptian household is going to die. Death is going to come upon Egypt. It's going to come upon the empire. Right? And and here's what's amazing, though. Here's what you gotta understand. In the midst of this promise of death, there's a provision made. And he says, hey, there there is a provision. Here's what you do. If you take a lamb, one that's without defect, spot, or blemish, and you slaughter it, and you wipe the blood over the door, then the angel of death, as he comes, will pass over your house, and you'll be spared, right? Right? And so what happens? Well, the angel of death comes, and those who did not have the blood of a spotless, without defect, unblemished land, wiped upon, blood wiped over their doorposts, angel of death, would kill and would take life from that house, and it would preserve life from those that did have the blood. Now, here's the thing. If you look in redemptive history, the people of God then start gathering and they often celebrate, man, we needed a substitute, we were in sin, we were in slavery, we needed help, we needed someone else to cover us from the angel of death, and God provided, right, somebody to take the wrath of God, somebody to take this for us so we didn't die. Amazing, right, so so as you got these people celebrating, as you got these people just, you know, all in arms because of what God has done, this all points to ultimately, it was not an end to itself. So you've got the sacrificial system that is instituted following the Passover, which is, hey, you're gonna keep doing this. You keep offering sacrifices of your best because the shedding of blood is necessary for the forgiveness of sin. Hebrews nine points back to that. Now, here's why they're doing it. Not because God needs sacrifices. Not because God needs the shedding of blood. It was all about what it taught. Right? If you think about blood in general, blood is heinous, blood is gross, it stains, it smells. It was to show you how scandalous your sin is in light of a holy God, and only through the removal of it, through a perfect, unblemished, spotless, holy object, substitute, person to appease what is there. Only then can you be freed and passed over. And so here you have the people of God celebrating the Passover Lamb. Now, what happens? We learned in Luke. What happens? Jesus shows up, pretty awesome. He enters the scene, right? Born of a virgin you got john the baptist yelling out hey he sees jesus hey this is who the lamb of god who takes away the sin of the world what's he saying hey there's your passover lamb right i mean this is why earlier in second first corinthians i think it's chapter five he says christ is your passover lamb the same group of people that's observing the lord's supper he's here he's come his blood is shed so the wrath that is towards you from a holy, righteous God can pass over you. And this is what this is representing. This is what this is showing us. This is what this is reminding us of, that we were in sin, that we were in slavery, that we deserve death. And yet death can pass over us eternally. And so here's what's going on. At the Last Supper, Jesus is basically saying, and Paul is basically restating this, my blood that will be shed tomorrow is the blood of the new covenant. He's shutting down the altar. <laughs> He's shutting it down. I don't need goats. I don't need lambs. I'm gonna be it. And my blood is gonna be the blood that is necessary, which is why Hebrews will say Christ died once for all. He is our high priest. We have access to God through him. And so here what we do, and here's where you have to land. Paul is basically saying, "When you take the Lord's Supper, here's what it is, very simply. It's all about your sin, and Christ's broken body and his shed blood that allows it, allows God to pass over your sin. That's what it is. Very simply. So here's what he says. He says that's to be done through number one, this thing called remembrance. This thing called remembrance, right? And and let me just say this: this is an active remembering. Okay? So this is not like. Something happened in the past, I'm gonna think about it, and yeah, I mean, I know Jesus was historical, I know that he was crucified, I know that he had blood that was shed, I know his body was broken. No, this is an active remembering. Now, this is why he's saying this, because these Corinthians, as they're coming to the table, their last thing they're doing is remembering Jesus. The last thing they're doing is thinking about Jesus and meditating on all the benefits that were accomplished for them in the person and work of Jesus. They were totally distracted. Their minds were going everywhere. So, now listen, that's what this does. The purpose of this is to recalibrate you and, and draw you back into the good realities of Jesus' person and work, to, to remind you, hey, this is where your righteousness is, this is where your hope is. This is where your greatest affection is. This is where your longings are met. This is where our identity is secured. This is what he gives us in the Lord's Supper. But what were they doing? Probably what many of us do if we're honest. Think about it as you approach the table, like every Sunday, week after week. Man, I mean, who picked this carpet colour? This is ugly, right? Right? Oh wow! Um, I wonder if the matzah's stale. Stale last week. Why is there juice, not wine? Why do we dip and not drink? Right? I mean, just, just. What's for lunch later? What am I going to grill out, man? Who's playing at four o'clock? I mean, think about honestly. Your mind is everywhere, but on broken bodies, shed blood, wrath of God passing over you. He's saying this isn't a time to daydream. This is a time to actively set your mind on a historical reality that is true for you if you are in Christ. Benefits that are yours. So let me give you a visible gospel so every time you take it, you're confronted with that reality and you're able to celebrate and revel in that truth. Do you do that? Now, he's gonna, in a little bit we'll get there, he's gonna show how serious it is if we don't the mockery we, we can make of Jesus. So this is you actively setting your mind on Good Friday to Easter. It's a reminder that this is real. Real blood was shed, a real body was broken, God incarnate. And the one who actually shed his blood as the Passover lamb, the one who actually broke his body is the one who watches you take He's actually literally watching you observe this. And let me add to this remembering piece. It's not just this physical remembering where you're doing something. It's totally spiritual, totally. Now, here's why, here's why this piece is important. Um, if you are not a Christian, by the way, if you're not a Christian, man, we're, we love you. We're thrilled you're here. And by the way, in the early church, it got this weird perspective that there was some weird, like, mystical, ethereal, in a dark room, eating people's flesh and blood. Like, that's not what we're doing, okay? So if you're like, man, I didn't know they were going to be doing this. Like, listen, nothing to be embarrassed about, nothing to be weirded out by. We're actually, we love that you get to watch and witness a people celebrate a good God that forgives sin. So, so here's what's happening though. If if you're not a Christian and that's okay, you can just honestly admit that with integrity in your heart. Um, here's the thing: you can do everything physical in this. Right? You can remember. You can eat. You can drink. Right? You can remember that Jesus did something. And you can even partake in the acts. But but here, what Paul is getting at is this is a this is not just a this is not just a physical remembering. This is an actually deeply spiritual. Remembering. So here's what I want to kind of do. Um, many of us have grown up in various traditions as to how this was observed, how this was taken, what this means. So I want to kind of clear the air and help you understand what we see this as, what we believe this is. Um, and if you want help, if you want to dig deeper, Wayne Grudem's really good. He helped me kind of just easily flesh out all the different types and ways that this thing kind of funnels itself out. So, so here's the first one. Uh, the first one is historically there was a, a teaching called what's transubstantiation. Now if you come from a Catholic background, you're v- deeply familiar with this, you're probably taught this, this is that these elements, the, the juice and or the wine and the crackers are literally and actually the body and blood of Jesus Christ, okay? So when you're coming to the table, you're actually physically eating and partaking of Jesus' body and his flesh. Now, in the early church, has got this crazy thing that, man, there were cannibals, right? Eating people because it was literally his body, literally his blood. And in a sense, we are even possibly re-crucifying Jesus again. Through that. And and that theology actually continues to flow in that you receive a means of grace. Now, we believe in that, but very differently. So so first in the transubstantiation sense is this means of grace is actually that as you literally eat Jesus' body and blood, you're actually receiving salvation. That you're actually receiving and being made right with God through the act of communion, which is something we do not believe. So there's a means of grace that follows in this understanding of transubstantiation. Uh, There's another position known as consubstantiation. Now, if you come from a Lutheran background or an Anglican background, um, this is, you don't believe that they are literally the body and blood of Jesus, but you believe there's a real kind of mystical presence that surrounds, maybe in and under, and the language is really hard to follow in my mind, like that that he's in there, but he's not in there, but it's like real, but it's mysterious, okay? That's kind of like what that is. So we're not going to go as far as to say it's actually his body and blood. We're not going to go as far as to say that it's just mere symbolism, mere remembering, and you kind of land in that area, okay? So if you're Lutheran or Anglican, that's kind of where you are. And then there's this guy uh, named Zwingli. I'm not even gonna try to pronounce his first name. Uh, he, this is basically, if you've got a Baptist background um, or you come out of maybe a Pentecostal background, this is you. Um, this is just merely symbolism. You're just simply remembering something that happened. No real spiritual anything happening. No real spiritual presence. So here, um, we believe what is more of what the reformers or the Presbyterians would believe. It's kind of uh, in the middle of uh, Baptist and consubstantiation. And and here is what, and then I'll give you reasons for that. Um, It's not that we believe we're literally having Jesus' body and blood, but that he is present. Not so much in the elements, but in the Holy Spirit of God, which indwells the people that are approaching the table. So here's what here's what um, this means. And so when Jesus says, "This is my body. This is my, my this is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you." Um, here's what he's saying. We, we take that more figurative than literal, but it doesn't release us from the spiritual depths of what is happening. So let me just help you understand this. Jesus often will say things that are figurative to get a, a theological point across, right? He, he talks in metaphors. He talks in similes. He talks in modes of talk that help you understand some deeper realities based upon something that's not to be taken literal, right? Some people call it figurative literal. You can call it whatever you want, but here's some examples. He says, I am the vine. I'm the fruit of the vine. Well, that doesn't mean Jesus walks around. He's got, you know, just uh, different types of uh, apples and oranges falling out of his body, okay? Um, he says, I am the door. That is signifying he is the only way to salvation. The only way someone can be saved, the only way someone can be made right with God is through entering the door that is Jesus Christ. This doesn't mean if you lift up his toga, you're going to find hinges, right? Um, You've got this other, I'm the bread of life, right? I'm the bread of life. It's signifying, showing that, man, you taste me, you have me, you are satisfied. You can eat from everything else the world has to offer, and you're going to run the merry-go-round of insanity and always hit a ceiling. You're never going to get out of that ceiling into true life into true fullness of joy until you have me. That didn't mean being the bread of life that he had flakes falling off him. If he did, it was just dandruff, okay? So, so here's what you, you've, you've got to see. He says this in a more figurative sense to get across the theological point. So that's why we don't take it literal, but we mean it's profound. If you go back, there's a preceding text that I think helps us root this. Go to 1 Corinthians 10, the chapter right before it, uh, and here is where this kind of helps you. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16 Um, He's talking about the worship to idols, people taking part in sacrifices at an altar, Um, what's right, what's wrong, Christian freedoms. And here's what he says. I want just to look at verse 18. He says, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not the participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? Here's what I want you to see. The word participants is the same word for partake in communion. So what is Paul saying? Paul is saying these people that killed these animals and participated in this altar, they weren't eating the altar. They were enjoying what was put on the altar. They were enjoying the benefits of what it was accomplishing. There's this idea of nourishment happening here. So, so here, as the sacrifices are killed and worshippers ate, he goes, you're not eating the altar here. You are enjoying what happened on the altar. So as we come to the table, it's more than just looking back, and yet it's not physically eating or re-crucifying Jesus Christ. It is As Hebrews says, Christ died once for all, so as you come, you are receiving grace. Not in the Catholic sense, in receiving salvation and being declared righteous, you are receiving, you're being nourished by all the benefits that are yours in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Like you're by faith grabbing hold of all those things going, it's mine. You're being nourished by that. Your faith is being bolstered by that. There is spiritually absolutely something happening as you fix your mind on what has taken place for you, for your past, present, and future sins that Christ did for you that is historical, that is actual, that is real, that you had wrath hanging over you, and the Passover lamb enabled it to pass over you because he shed his blood that was perfect without defect, spot, or blemish in your place as your substitute, died the death, rose again so you can come to the table Table and be nourished by that. So, if you're discouraged, if you feel condemnation, if you feel shame, if you feel guilt, if you feel self righteous, the table is here to say, hey, everyone's righteous because of Jesus and his broken body and his bloodshed, and nothing that you do, you can't boast in it, you can't brag about it, you can't bring any fame to yourself because Jesus did it once for all. So, are you nourished by that when you come to the table? Are you thinking about that? Is your mind placing itself there? It says, by faith, eat that. By faith, be nourished by that. That's what Jesus is saying. Be encouraged by that. Be ministered. And as the Holy Spirit of God indwells the people of God as they come to the table, absolutely, He ministers to us and forms us and shapes us through the visible sermon that is communion, the Lord's Supper. So it's, I heard a pastor say, and I don't remember who, but it was really good. There's a spiritual eating underneath a physical eating. But yeah, you're physically eating, but there's a spiritual eating happening underneath all of that. And that's why, guys, um, just so you understand our heart on this, why after the sermon every week, there's a different focus. I don't know if you've noticed that, if you've been coming for a while. The sermon will land and it will apply itself at a different facet of the gospel every week and we bring that into a thread of the table because we want you to see the innumerable, the incalculable promises that are yours in Christ, that the facets of the gospel are so many, so widespread, you can't just enjoy one and only one for the rest of your life, that all that you're receiving in and through what is the Lord's Supper, the facets are incalculable. So as you come to the table each week, you're reminded of a different aspect. You're nourished by a different aspect all satisfied, all secured in Christ. Which is why 1 Corinthians says, all the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus. But there's something else that he has for us. Verse 26, says, for often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim, You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. I love this. It's not just private. It's public proclamation. That's why it matters corporately that we do this. We're proclaiming something. We're telling others we believe in something, that we're nourished by something. This is awesome, I love this. It's this, this public act of worship, we proclaim him publicly. That's, that's why I said, if, if you're in here and you're going, oh man, I, I didn't know they were gonna do this, man, this thing is so weird. Man, we love that you're here, we love that you get to see a public display, a public proclamation of people that say, man, we love confessing sins to God because he is gracious to forgive us our sins. We love to walk in rightness with the God of the universe because he's wired us that way and we know that God appeased himself in a sacrifice of Jesus to allow the wrath to pass over us. You see, people that are, that are content and, and satisfied in a God who gives them generously of himself. So we have fullness of joy and fullness of life who frees us from enslavement to sins. So we want you to see that. We want you to understand that. So this is a public Proclamation, And then he says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup. Doesn't say every week, doesn't say every other week. There's freedom here. Lots of people do it differently. Some of you guys came from churches where, man, it was like, I don't know, once a year? Some of you guys came from churches once a month? Some, you can fall in the same routine rhythm no matter when you do it. Here, our heart is, we want to confess, we want to examine, we want to remember, we want to cherish as often as we can. Because Jesus gave it to us. We want to see that visible reminder again. So here our regular rhythm is normally every week where we come to the front after the service, after examination, and we take of the bread, take of the cup because it recalibrates us. This is where my forgiveness is. This is where my hope is. This is where my righteousness is. This is where my refuge is. But then Paul shares a sobering word. (laughs) This is weighty. Yes, it's an act of remembrance. Yes, it's an act of proclamation. It's public. It's not private. But man, it is weighty. He says don't come to the table in a careless way, an unworthy way. He uses this worthy, unworthy language. So... What that means is, here, here's very simply, this is an unworthy way. If you're a person who says, man, yeah, I profess Jesus because I don't want to go to hell, but then I love living like hell. I don't repent of any sin. I'm an outright rebellion to God. That's an unworthy manner. If you're someone who's not a Christian, I'm gonna define what that is in a minute. That's an unworthy manner. If you're a person who's like, oh man, this is just like the bread part of the show. I'm going. That's unworthy. That's an unworthy manner. He says if you do it in an unworthy way, you're making a mockery out of what Jesus did. So Paul says, examine yourself. Lord, you know my heart. Lord, you know my mind. Lord, you know my life. Show me where I need to confess. Show me where I need to repent. Show me where you are not God and other things are God. Show me the secret sins and spaces in my life that I don't see. Search me, O God, like the psalmist. Know my heart, test me. See where I need to confess, repent, enjoy you. And he goes on to explain this in verse 29, with this, this whole idea of unworthy. For if anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some of you have died. I don't know if you've ever read a passage on the Lord's Supper. Just read this one. Don't, you don't even need someone to preach it. People were taking in an unworthy manner, and so God was taking their life. Some of you have died, but if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. <laughs> so Paul says if your attitude is, eh, you can't judge me, well, Jesus is going to judge you, and that's far more terrifying and evidence that he has judged you is that people have died as they're coming to the table people are getting weak and ill because they're coming in an unworthy manner going i don't care about him i don't care about my unrepentant sin i don't care about what jesus really says i don't even identify with him he's not even my allegiance he's not even my lord so i'm gonna i don't know this is the time when you come up and take i'll just take two and people were becoming weak and ill people were having life taken from them this is weighty, weighty, weighty stuff. I mean, can you imagine, imagine, if you're in line coming to the table and the person in front of you just falls over? I'm gonna go back and pray some more, (laughs) right? right? I mean, I'm, I'm going to confess a little more. I'm going I'm to examine my heart a little more. I'm going to really test myself, right? I mean, that's what he's showing you. He's showing you the weightiness of, this isn't this again, right? This is so common, right? I, I, whatever church back when you grew up in, even it can become common here, right? Where at the end of the sermon, we close our eyes and you're just thinking about everything else, birds, drums, air, food. You're not thinking about Jesus. You're not setting your mind on something that has grabbed you and taken hold of you. And so you just come up nonchalant. He says, don't do that, it's better just to sit and not take. And just, just, but those of you that can, that are in a mentality of enjoying and placing your mind and affections there, who are Christians, come and enjoy and celebrate what God gives us in this gift to his church. Absolutely. So here he says, don't mess with Jesus and make a public mockery of him. So we judge, we examine ourselves, he says. That's why we're never going to fence the table here. There are traditions, old traditions, where people basically, the, the elders, the people of the church, sat on the table and go, hmm, yeah, you're not holy. Go sit down. I don't think you're a Christian. Go sit down. Okay, here, here's why we don't do that. Because, listen, most people sin secretively. Like, okay, so you profess even outwardly that you're some Christian, but inwardly you got grust, greed, hatred, lies, deceit. I can't see that. That's why he says, we don't judge you. Judge yourself. He puts it on the people listening. Judge yourselves, examine your heart. Ask God to reveal himself. Use some wisdom here. That's why we're called to judge ourselves, to examine our hearts. Now, this does not mean you have to be perfect. This exists because you're not, right? I mean, mean, the table exists because you can't be. Praise God we can't be, right? We got someone that stood in our place for our sin and absorbed the wrath for us. It's also not saying here. Um, I totally lost my train of thought. I'm just so excited about this. It's also not you deciding if you're good enough. I'll make sure there's that distinction. Like it's not, no one's good enough, it's also not deciding if you are. Jesus was the perfect one. Jesus is the only righteous one. So what you're doing is you're acknowledging that I'm trusting in Jesus for my payment, as my savior, as my God, as my Lord, as my righteous covering, as my refuge. You're declaring that publicly. So that's what's happening, right? You're, you're coming to Christ with your sin, your guilt, your shame, your identity, your joy, your hope. But Paul says, be sure that you're a Christian. So here, let me just, we're gonna start landing the plane. And I just wanna, I, this is why every week, you guys are gonna hear language all the time. that, Hey, if you're a Christian or not a Christian, don't take this if you're not a Christian. If you are a Christian, do some examination. This is why we say that, because, because this is weighty, because this is serious, because we do care. So, so here are just, just a few things. Um, and, and let me help you, if, if you don't come to the table, there's nothing to be embarrassed about. There are Christians that aren't coming to the table on given weeks, because they're just not in a season of life, not a place in their heart, the examination isn't there, whatever reason they have, right? But listen, if you are a, not a Christian, don't take. So here, let me just help us with this, a couple questions, and at our time of pausing, reflecting, maybe you can examine your heart with these, okay? Um, and so here it is. If your answer is to no to any of these, you're not a Christian. That's just. Very, very much how it is. It's just as simple as that. So, uh, number one, do you believe that you are a sinner, that you are an idolater who has openly rebelled against the God of the universe? Fundamental. No other gods before Him. Do you believe that? Do you believe by nature and choice you have openly done that? You have chosen your own will over His. Now, if you're someone who uh, doesn't believe that, then you're not a Christian. And 1 John will say, if you claim to have no sin, you're a liar and the truth is not in you. So you're self-deceived, right? Number two, uh, do you believe that Jesus Christ was God, was God in deity, fullness of God, and God in humanity, fullness of man, though he never sinned, that he paid the debt, he was a sacrifice and substitute for you in your place in the cross to pay for sin and take wrath that was towards you from God. Do you believe that? Do you believe that you get his righteousness and he takes your sin? Luther called that the great exchange. Do you believe that happens on the cross of Christ? That he actually declares you, makes you righteous based upon nothing that you do and solely based upon his work, his merits, his rights. And you receive those by faith. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Christ was crucified for your sin, for your rebellion, for thoughts of deed, thoughts of action, unknown thoughts, subconscious thoughts, subconscious actions, and rose on the third day? Do you believe in the resurrection of Jesus? If you don't, you're not a Christian. And and hear me, because I talk to people a lot. If your answer is to no to any of those, those are kind of the non-negotiables, then you've created something that's not historical and not orthodox. Like I don't know where that's coming from or where you've made that. So those are the non-negotiables, okay? Now, now, there is another one I would ask, although I wouldn't be as strict on this one um, because I think maturing as a Christian now works differently for, bo- for, for many people. So, but hear me, though. You, this is called sanctification. Just get two big words if you're new to Christianity or, or not a Christian. Justification and sanctification. So you can't even get on the road to sanctification unless justification happens, Okay? So, so justification is you being declared right before God based upon the sacrifice of Jesus Christ alone. He declares you. He says, you're righteous. I see you as the righteousness of my son. That puts you on the road to growing and maturing in the image and likeness of Jesus. Now, sanctification happens differently for everybody. Now, I don't mean it's for everybody, not a trajectory at least of north where there's at least a, a trajectory of becoming more like Jesus. I'm not saying there aren't struggles or weakness or doubts or challenges, but I'm saying at the end of the day, there's a genuine hatred for sin, a genuine love for Jesus, a genuine submission to his will that moves you progressively, making you more into the image of his son. Okay, so, so here's why I'm going to ask this other question that's not a non-negotiable justification question, but a more sanctification question. And this is why I'm not, I'm not going to ask you if you love Jesus, okay? Because I know we're asked that a lot, so, but, but, but love is so tied into the, the emotive state too much, in just my opinion. Now, there does need to be affections. There does need to be love. Jesus says, if you do love me, if you love me, you obey my commands, right? So there is love, but, but here's, here's what I'm saying is... is I think sometimes it's too tied to affection. So here's what happens. Some of you guys, if you hear me say, hey, do you love God? Do you love Jesus? You're immediately heading back to youth camp on Wednesday night where we chant 72 times the same worship song over and over until everybody comes and rededicates their life, right? Now that's a, that's a beautiful situation. That's a mountaintop experience. That You're going right back to that goosebumps, fuzzy, fuzzy. Oh, I felt his presence. I think that's when. That's fine. Those are great moments. But here's the thing, guys. I want you to understand. Nobody walks in that constantly. Like You're not going to read anyone in the Bible who just constantly walks on the cloud floating with no dark nights of the soul, no wrestling, no despair. They're constantly what the Puritans call holy sweat. They're clinging to Jesus, clinging to the gospel, going, God, help me. Help remind me. Help walk with me. Help sustain me. Man, I'm I'm discouraged. I'm having a hard time. I'm, I'm having hard thoughts. Would you bring me back to who you are and what you've done? That's why the gospel reminds fashion, sanctifies us daily. So listen, if that's you and you've never had dark nights, wrestling, anguish, you're the first one, if you're a Christian. (laughs) Honestly, no one in the Bible will walk that way. I'm not saying there's not joy, there's not delight. I'm talking in this emotive kind of place we kind of pigeonhole ourselves. So here's the question I want to ask you, is are you serious about following Jesus? That's what I'd rather ask. Is there a genuine desire to submit to him? To submit to his will no no matter how hard that will might be? Is there a genuine, growing submission to him, his will, his desires, his goals? Is there a genuine hatred for sin in your heart? At all, is there a genuine just, man, I, I don't like this, I hate this, I know it offends him? I want to rid myself of this sin, these residual effects of the fall. I want to continue to lean into and pursue Jesus above that. I want to enjoy Jesus more than that. Are you serious about following him? If none of that exists, I would say there's room to worry whether you've really been transformed. I say there's reason to worry whether you've had actual belief. Now, that's gonna show up in different ways for all of us, right? For, for a transformed heart, for a genuine heart, it's gonna manifest itself, so I wanna to be too particular, I just wanna ask that genuine, genuine question, and this is why what Paul says here, and this text, is really good news for us. This is why it's good news. He says, if you don't wanna be judged by Jesus when you die, which deserves hell, judge yourself now, and his wrath can pass over you. That's great news. You can judge yourself now honestly as an idolater, as a rebellion against the God of the universe. I've committed cosmic treason. I'm a glory thief. I've wanted glory for myself. I don't want him to run my life. I don't wanna submit to what he has for me. So if that's you, if you can acknowledge that and then realize that Jesus is the only pathway to that, that he's the only champion that's gonna stand for you in your place on judgment day, that if you've got him, you've got everything, then you can be glad and rejoice and embrace even today the gift of salvation. You can have Christ now. You can have mercy now. You can have forgiveness now. You can have righteousness now. You can have hope, identity, security, refuge now. You can have that. He says, so judge yourself. Honestly, examine yourself as a sinner and trust in Jesus to cover your sin and live your life as a new Christian. (laughs) Praise God. So here's what we're gonna do for a few minutes. We do this at the end of every service. And let me just say... um, Every week we give some space for this. And, and I realize the issue is that we're confronting something every week, and that's that we're a culture that hates to press pause. Right, That's why we all love entertainment. I mean, it just distracts me, takes me away from awkwardness. I don't know, turn on the TV, put on some music, I don't know, talk to me. Huh? So that's why every week we, we like to press pause. right In between the sermon, before we respond in song, as we take the Lord's Supper, to reflect, to dive deep, to dig, to consider, examine me God, expose me, lay me bare. Because here's the thing, if you don't ever take time to do this, you realize you're robbing yourself of the joy and depth of intimacy that Jesus desires with you. Like if you don't give yourself space for this, man, this is, you're missing out. You're robbing yourself. And so we're gonna take some time just to t- press pause and enter the sacred space and consider. And, and that's why Paul says this takes work. It takes active remembering. It takes active thought. God wants to minister to your heart. And listen, I know some of you guys are gonna, you're gonna go so crazy, you just wanna text somebody or, I don't know, beat everybody out in the parking lot, you know, get in my car. I don't, I don't know what it is. You're gonna be tempted to do that, right? Your kids will be fine. No one's tasing them and burden kids. Like, like we can just leave them, right? So, so here, take time. We just examine Enter that space. You and God, man, holiness and unholy. And and what Christ has done for you, and don't rob yourself of that joy. So here's what, I'm gonna give give you three questions. I I don't really ever do this, so I thought it'd be helpful. Right on the screen for you to consider during your time. Now if you're here and you're not a Christian, you're not quite sure what to make of this, there's no shame in that. Use this time to say, God, reveal yourself to me. God, show me who you are. If you're God who's real and you're God who exists, He's revealed himself through the preaching. He's revealed himself, he's gonna reveal himself through the proclamation of singing, the proclamation of the visible gospel, but say, God, God, help me. Bring me to a place of repentance and confession and and reliance on you for sacrifice, for the Passover lamb, to be the one who can absorb wrath for me so I don't have to do it. And if you're a Christian here, here's the three questions on the screen. Um, What sin needs to be confessed and repented of? Let the Lord bring that to the surface. Uh, Number two, is there an area of your life where your hope is placed on something other than Jesus? Here's an easy way to spot that. Um, What dictates joy? What dictates contentment? What dictates just daily mood swings for you? (laughs) And let God remind you that in Christ you have refuge, you have safety, you have rest. You have security, you have stability. And then finally, um, are you serious about following him? Ask yourself. God, show me, am I serious about humbly walking and submitting myself to your will in decisions and actions and obedience? Not just in my feelings. And we're gonna examine, confess, repent, and then celebrate that Jesus covers our sin, that he's our Passover. And let me say, um, for the Christian, communion is something so serious but it is also something so joyous. I just wanna make sure you hear that. Like the early church, when they celebrated the Lord's Supper on Resurrection Day, right? I mean, it was a time of celebration. He's our Passover lamb. So like, it's not a funeral. Like you're not coming to the table like someone died. He's not dead. Like he rose, like you've been given new life. So we come, yes, seriously, yes, examining our hearts, but we also come joyous. Because you're declaring and remembering, man, my debt is paid. The substitute came. The slavery I was in, I was delivered from. Man, the the wrath that stood over me, he absorbed gladly for me. The righteousness I desperately had to have, he accomplished it for me and gave it to me. So I'm gonna come to the table in joy after I confess, repent, consider. So let me give you some time to do that, and then we'll sing in response, declaring who God is and reminding each other of what he's done in the sacrifice of his son.